So today is uh, a day when we reflect on our good fortune that we're able to live in the world at a time when the Buddhist teachings are still here with us. Uh, this is the first day of the Buddhist Vasa, the Rains Retreat, which uh, monastics all over the world hold to. And also uh, the full moon of Asalaha is the time when the Buddha gave his very first teaching after his enlightenment, the Dhammachakapavatana Sutta, where they say he set forth the wheel of the Dhamma rolling and it's our good fortune that it's still rolling today in that we can still hear the teachings, practice the teachings uh, for our benefits, way out of uh, suffering, stress, way out of sangsara. They call the Buddha the awakened one. That applies to the, the quality of the mind of the Buddha. The mind of the Buddha is awakened. Awakened to truth, to reality, the way things are. And the Buddhist practice, the development of our, our minds, is a, it's a process of awakening, awakening to truth. Uh, sometimes literally awakening when you practice on a meditation retreat you'll find sometimes you're sleepy so it's literally waking up but more deeply <clears throat> more profoundly is awakening to truth because the root source of uh, our suffering as human beings our stress and problems in life is a uh, misunderstanding or lack, lack of understanding of truth and the Buddha's words avicca meaning lack of knowledge so the Buddha was one who had awakened from delusion through his own efforts going out into the forest to practice and he came to understand the four noble truths as he taught in the Dhammachaka Sutta on that occasion to understand exactly what suffering is its nature uh, to fully penetrate the nature the, and to understand the nature of suffering what suffering is as a human being in an objective way a way where he just understands it for what it is and understands and knows the cause of suffering and has really and relinquished that abandoned that in the cause of suffering, ignorance, craving, attachment that affects our minds as human beings. He understood that was the cause and he abandoned that through his practice, through this process of awakening to truth, recognizing what suffering and its cause was and then abandoning it, using the path, the fourth noble truth, and the Majima Patipata, the middle way, the way that's neither indulgent uh, in just seeking endless uh, happiness through the senses, nor the way of uh, dukkha, just 
giving oneself a lot of unnecessary dukkha without real purpose. The, the middle way is developing body, speech and mind and cultivating oneself to understand truth. That's the true middle way that leads to the end of suffering. And then you realize the cessation, the full cessation of suffering, purifying his mind. Uh, what we call niroda, the cessation of suffering, or nibbana, a state of complete freedom from all suffering. So when we come to practice meditation today, and we're practicing in his footsteps, uh, developing our understanding of these four noble truths and awakening to truth. So we're cultivating our hearts and minds to awaken to the truth. So we have to develop the qualities uh, and train ourselves in those qualities to bring up those qualities that will help us to awaken to truth. Which is why we come to meditate here. And the Buddha pointed out, you know, in, in, the, in life we tend to always be seeking different kinds of happiness, thinking that will get us um, beyond suffering. But usually you know, it's seeking what we might call more worldly, um, worldly happiness, sensual happiness, and more pleasant experiences, more possessions, and so on. And we're also always trying to run away or get away from suffering. Rather than understand it, we just try to avoid it or get away from it. But he said, through his own experience, he came to understand you know, the real way to overcome or transcend suffering is through actually understanding it and then uprooting the causes of suffering. So it's a practice of learning and educating oneself, investigating truth or awakening to truth. And the Buddha always pointed out that the highest happiness we experience as human beings is santi, peace, anati santi paramang sukhang. There's no happiness higher than the happiness of a peaceful mind. And the way peace arises is through the development of understanding, through insight. You know, what defines a Buddha? What, what, what is um, the nature of a Buddha and the mind of a Buddha? Is that he's awakened to truth. He's seen the nature of our existence as human beings and the nature of this world is anicca, dukkha and anatta. It's impermanent unsatisfactory and not self without an owner this is the truth that he awakened to and this is by penetrating these truths of anicca dukkha anatta this is what brought the Buddha to peace and then all the teachings that he gave such as in the Dhammachaka Sutta are pointing to these truths the path that leads to developing this insight to see the nature of this world, of ourselves and the world around us, is anicca dukkha anatta. This brings the mind to true peace and takes it beyond just the normal kind of happiness and suffering or pleasure and pain that we're normally caught up with. 
taking the mind and our experience a little bit beyond that or deeply, profoundly beyond that. So this all came through the Buddha's own practice, practicing um, coming to understand and awaken to truth. So he went out from his uh, comfortable life in the palace with wealth and power, and he went and studied with the leading meditation masters of the day. But he realized that even what the great meditation masters in those days in India were teaching was still limited, still not fully uh, leading to a full freedom from suffering yet. They taught uh, the practice of samadhi, pavana, the development of states of concentration and jhana, but didn't teach much about wisdom or insight and didn't teach much about anicca dukkha anatta. So he could see even developing these great deep states of peace through the practice of meditation, still there was suffering in the mind and the causes of suffering were still there in his own heart. So this is what the, led the Buddha to go off and practice for himself. He said, well, if nobody can teach this, I'll have to find out for myself. And it was through his own investigation and training in wisdom, panya, that he finally liberated his heart from craving and attachment, understood what it was, how it was the cause of suffering, and liberated his heart through the practice of meditation, calming the mind and then investigating truth. So as we come to practice meditation here today, we're developing these same qualities in the footsteps of the Buddha. Learning to calm our minds, to develop what we call samatha pawana, just learning to calm, concentrate the mind. But then also to develop insight, vipassana pawana, insight or wisdom. Through investigating, investigating the true nature of our existence. So the way the Buddha practiced on his in the night of his enlightenment, where he developed mindfulness of breathing as his way of calming the mind. So when we practice mindfulness of breathing, we're following in the footsteps of the Buddha, doing exactly what he did. And we can train. Say today, dedicate our, uh, our day to the practice of uh, mindfulness of breathing as a basis for calming our minds, learning to calm the mind, relax the mind, bring it to a sense of inner peace, and then from there developing insight as well. Anapanasati, you might practice following the feeling of the breath, directing your mind to find the feeling of the breath or the sensation of the breath. If you've never done it before, then you might begin just practicing finding the spot where the breath enters the body at the tip of the nose. Make that spot, that space at the tip of your nose completely clear to your awareness, to your consciousness calming your mind by directing it to just that feeling of the breath going in at the tip of the nose and then follow it down to the chest 
and then to the abdomen. Observe at these three points, first of all, just calmly establish awareness at the tip of the nostril, the chest, and then down at the abdomen. Take some deep breaths, and then follow the feeling of the breath in, and then the breath out from tip of the abdomen up to the chest and out to the tip of the nostrils. You might recite the mantra, Buddha, as you do this, is one way they teach in Thailand. So as you breathe in, Bud, you breathe out, To. As you're following that feeling of the breath, you recite Buddha at the same time. Or some people find counting in pairs helpful. So breathe in one, follow that feeling in at the tip of the nostril to the chest, to the abdomen, back up to the chest, out at the tip of the nostril, and count one for an out breath. So one in breath, one out breath. And then two, and then three, maybe count up till 10 and then return to one. So we use these techniques, both the, either the recitation of the mantra Bhutto or the counting, just to help focus the mind on its task of mindfulness of breathing, becoming mindful of the breath or keeping the breath in mind. And obviously you also have to use wisdom from the very beginning of your meditation as you're practicing this, learning to calm and direct your mind to the peace of the breath. You have to remind yourself what you're doing. So you use wisdom. Sometimes we just have to have a conversation with ourselves as we meditate and say, what am I doing? Oh, I'm meditating on the breath. Where should my mind be? Oh, I should focus it on the tip of the nostrils. Am I breathing in, breathing out, and so on. If you find you're starting to become distracted, then you can use wisdom as well as mindfulness to bring your attention back to the breath. You remind yourself that you don't have to think about all these other things that you normally like to think about at this time either thoughts directed to the past or thoughts directing, directed to the future, what you might do tomorrow or in the future. You're learning to just bring the mind to the present moment. As you breathe in, as you breathe out, you're directing your mind to do this. Uh, so it takes some patient effort, some skill, some wisdom to remind yourself what you're doing and also to help clear up the different issues that are bothering you in your mind that take you away from the present moment of the breath. We're working with what we call the five hindrances, the basic obstacles to the mind becoming peaceful, wholesome and good in, in, a, in the practice of meditation. Whether it's the practice of Generosity or sila, virtue or meditation, and these five hindrances are the obstacles that you'll encounter. It's either um, the desire for sensual pleasure, just thinking about things that are pleasurable, wanting them, 
or ill will, aversion directed to people or yourself or other things, experiences. Sleepiness, dullness, restlessness, agitation, or just doubt, skeptical doubt and wondering, doubting about what you're doing. And these five hindrances, you're constantly working with them in your practice, whether it's samatha, calming the mind, or vipassana, developing wisdom. They'll keep coming up to take away your mindfulness, distract you, and cause different kinds of what we call mental proliferation. All that endless distracted thinking going round and round in circles. So our first aim in the practice of meditation is learning to overcome these obstacles, these hindrances. And you'll find when you put effort in and your mind gathers together, comes together, there'll be those periods where it does calm down and you can be more mindful of the breath going in, breath going out. You'll start to experience a sense of peace, calm. As the mind calms down, you might have new experiences that you've not had before. You might feel very light and relaxed, both in body and mind. Some people have tears come, they start to cry. Some people, their sense of the body seems to expand and their hair stand on end and they have tingling sensations or waves of tingling sensation up and down their spine and so on. Sometimes we feel almost as if we're so light that the body is just floating away into space. Or the body can feel so big grand, uh, large, it seems to fill even a hall like this, it expands to fill the whole, whole hall or even beyond that. All of these are different experiences of pity, rapture. As your concentration on the breath becomes more refined and more sustained, then rapture might arise. Might have, it might be accompanied by different visions, lights and so on, but all one has to do is notice, take note of these experiences, not to worry about them or doubt about them, but just, just a note, this is the experience of the mind calming down as concentration improves. These experiences might just come up momentarily for a few moments or for many minutes or even for a long period of time, half an hour, an hour or so on. And what this leads into as one keeps practicing, keeps returning to the breath, the breath becomes more refined, leads into a sense of deep contentment, happiness. And this contentment, happiness, is totally internal. It's just the mind being happy within itself based on its practice of concentrating on the breath. It's what we call niramisa sukha. A happiness independent of any material object or experience. It's just the happiness of the mind contentedly following the breath, concentrating on one object and letting go of all the other distractions, all the other things we normally think about. 
not bothered about different physical sensations, say pain or itches, sounds, memories, thoughts, all settling down and the mind is just calmly concentrating on the breath so it becomes very content, peaceful and happy. This is the opposite of what we call amisa sukha, the normal kind of happiness we seek in life, dependent on having different experiences, pleasure of possessions and different experiences, sights, sounds, tastes, smells, touch. And normally to feel happy we have to have something or do something, eat some food or talk to somebody or travel somebody somewhere or watch something, look at something. That kind of happiness is very temporary and leads to the agitation of the mind. Whereas this kind of niramisa sukha, the inner happiness of the peaceful mind, focusing on the breath, is very long-lasting and very satisfying. The mind feels very full, complete, happy in itself. And it leads into this state of what we call one-pointedness, where even the sense of the breath going in and out might disappear. And the mind just becomes very, very peaceful inside. It's let go of all its concerns about the world around, about other people, work, the weather, it's cold, it's hot, and so on. It's just peaceful internally happy by itself, secluded from the world. This is the kind of peace that the Buddha experienced in his enlightenment process of training his mind. But he also said this isn't the highest peace or the, the end of uh, the practice. This is a foundation for developing deeper wisdom, deeper understanding of the nature of ourselves and this world. But it's a very important piece. It's like a very uh, firm foundation for the mind. The mind becomes very um, settled in itself. And it also understands clearly what is not peaceful. So when we experience the peace of meditation like this, even if it's only for a few minutes, we feel quite calm and happy, then when, when we're not peaceful, we start to see why. So when you, you go away, you finish your meditation and you go away and you start talking to people, say, and all that peace disappears and you find yourself back with a lot of moods and distracted and agitated we can see the relationship, say, to how much you talk and what you talk about and this state of peace. And what you do, how you spend your time, the basic sort of decisions you make in your life, how you spend your time, what you do, where you go. All these things start to become clear what is supportive of peace and what is actually agitating us in our daily life. So if you practice meditation and experience some peace like this, you start to see the value of keeping precepts. You can see some kinds of speech are very um, 
agitating to the mind, if we're aggressive or unkind in our speech, we don't feel peaceful or happy inside. Whereas if we train in speaking that which is true and speaking in a kind, polite way to other people, then we feel happy inside. We haven't created any suffering for ourselves or others. And so on. And we see the relationship between the peace of mind and our sila, our external behavior of body and speech. This peace of mind is also the foundation for developing insight or wisdom into these truths of anicca, dukkha, anatta. And it's only when the mind is peaceful enough, calm enough inside itself that we can start to look at the world correctly and not just following, say, our views and opinions, likes and dislikes about this world and about ourselves and other people, but we're able to look at the world in a more detached and clear way because the mind has calmed down, it's more peaceful. We start to notice things. And once the mind is peaceful like this, it can notice impermanence. You know, if your mind is still, then you'll see what is moving and what is changing. If your mind is peaceful, you'll see what is dukkha, what is unsatisfactory and disturbing and suffering. And if your mind is still in meditation, the sense of self has disappeared because you're peaceful, then you'll see what is self and what is not self. You'll understand how grasping at this body and mind and this world as a self is a cause of suffering. Because the mind is going deeper and beyond the normal way of looking at things, the normal conventional reality. And normally we have this sense of everything here I have, this body, my possessions, the people I know, my family and so on. We have this sort of solid sense, this is all me, mine, myself. My body, my feelings, my thoughts, my possessions, my car, my house, my husband, wife, my children, my parents. We always interpret everything as a, from the point of view of a fixed, solid self. And we suffer because of that, because it's not really in line with reality. And that if you take that which is not self as self, you soon start to, start to suffer, don't you? When things change, say when impermanence comes along, we start to suffer. If we don't see impermanence, we take things as permanent, permanent and belonging to me and something that lasts and belongs to me. Well, when it changes, we suffer. That could be material things or it could be just our own thoughts and moods. You know, they change. They're unpredictable. So the Buddha said to begin developing wisdom, turn, once your mind is more peaceful like this in meditation, then turn to investigate this body. Let me say my body, this, this person sitting right here. You know, who is this really? The way we can develop insight into an dukkha anatta will start questioning the nature of this body as you sit here. And one way is to investigate it through the 32 parts. So you run through the different parts of this body from the top of the head to the hair on your head 
hair on your body, nails, teeth, skin. Just the very first five things that you'll see when you look at a person, say the external part of this body, your body or anyone else's body, and start to ask questions. Are these things permanent or impermanent? Your hair is constantly growing, your nails are growing, your teeth grow from when you're a baby, eventually they fall out, your hair falls out, your skin is changing, constantly growing and then dying, dead skin drops off the body and so on. Then go into your body, the 32 parts involves all the different organs of the body, the heart, the lungs, the liver, the kidney, the spleen, the stomach, the intestine, the bones, the blood, all the different parts of this body. And the Buddha compared it to a chariot. So if you take the parts of a chariot, uh, separate them out and put them in piles on the floor in front of you, or in a modern version, maybe your car, you have a car, take each part of your car out. So the rubber tires, the metal body, the seats, the steering wheel, the engine parts, the exhaust pipe, and so on. You place all those parts of the car out in front of you on, on, on the floor and there's no car left. They're just different parts. There's no sense of a, the complete picture of a car is gone. Well, you do this in your meditation with your own body. You put the hair on one side, the skin somewhere else, the bones somewhere else the heart somewhere else, the liver somewhere else. You end up with a lot of piles of different body parts, but no person. And that person you usually identify with is gone. Then you could put them all back together again and say, oh, this is how I make myself into a person. My hair, my skin, my eyes, my nose, my mouth. I'm tall, I'm short, I'm fat, I'm thin, and so on. Put all the parts back together again, and you have that person, and then take them apart again, and you lose the sense of that person again. Or you could go deeper and just contemplate these body parts for what they are. They're just chemical substances that come from nature. Earth, air, fire, water. And the solid parts are just made up of the earth element that we gain through our food. Liquid parts from the liquid elements. The breath you breathe in that goes into the lungs, oxygenates the blood, is the air element. And the heat and the cool of this body is the heat element, fire element. But where is the person in that? How stable are those elements? They're constantly changing. We're all getting older. We all get hungry. We all experience pleasure and pain with this body and so on. So in our meditation we can investigate this quietly, ask ourselves questions, look at this body and study it. And this starts to give us a new insight into the nature of this body. See it as a Nietzsche Dukkha Anatta. Even just following the breath, you're, you're, you're following this body. Because the breath is part of this body, isn't it? 
And when we talk about practicing mindfulness of this body, just following a breath in and a breath out, you're observing the nature of this body is impermanent, unsatisfactory, not self. One breath in doesn't last very long and you have to breathe out again. Because it doesn't last very long, it's not a very satisfactory way of living, is it? Dependent on breath, 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 breathe in, breathe out. All you do is get a cold or flu or some lung problem and you can't even breathe properly. You start to see the dukkha of the breath, the suffering of breath. On a cold morning, you breathe out and all, you see all the mist. Breathe in, it can be even painful when it's very cold. Or if it's very hot, it can be painful to breathe. The breath is an each dukkha anatta, it's not self. Who can say this breath is really self? The breath is an impermanent, unsatisfactory, ownerless phenomenon. You know, nobody really owns this breath that goes in and out. It just carries on, whether you like it or not, it carries on from day one of our life until the end of our life. So this is developing insight, wisdom into the true nature of our self. What we call a self is actually made up of many things, made up of this body, body parts, four elements. We experience feelings arising, passing away all the time. Pleasure, pain, neutral. As we practice mindfulness, we can observe this, the, the impermanent nature of feeling. Or we can focus on the mind itself. You know, the mind that we seem to take as being me, mine, myself, this mind. But see how changeable it is. You know, with certain experiences, the mind goes one way. A different experience, it goes another way. First we're happy, and then we're sad. We have pleasurable mental states and unpleasant mental states. We have greed, and we lose our greed, it becomes free of greed. We become angry, and then anger moves on. The mind is constantly changing, affected by the different cravings and attachments that we have. They'll condition the mind, put it into different ways different experiences. And none of that is really a self. You know, we, we let our mind go according to our cravings and attachments, but that's happening as a conditioned process. We say one thing depends on the other. So the way the mind is depends on how you think, how you're directing your mind, what you're doing with it, what you're experiencing. So these are the, what we call the foundations of mindfulness, starting to investigate this body, the feelings, the mind itself. And constantly it's a process of awakening. You're awakening to truth. And this is why it gives rise to a sense of freedom, freedom and uh, deep peace, deep happiness, because you're freeing yourself from delusion that previously caused you so much suffering. 
when you can start to see the impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, the lack of self in this body and this mind, well, it changes many things in life, doesn't it? If you can really see this body as impermanent, not self, then you know the, the basis for all our greed and our anger in life starts to fade. If you can see feeling as not self, you can see all the greed and the anger we have in life, it starts to fade. And when we don't have much insight, not much wisdom, well, we tend to constantly be following our craving, our attachment. We don't see it. We're not awakened yet. So where does it bring us? It brings us a lot of mental agitation. We go running around in life, trying to constantly grasp and gain more pleasant experiences and run away from the unpleasant. And in the process of that, we often make a lot of karma, often quite negative karma. You know, we get, when we're subject to greed, we think we can own things and have things and that will make us happy. So we run around trying to gain more possessions, more power, more wealth and so on. But how long can we hold on to all of that? At the very least, when we, when we die, we can't take any of the things we own in this world with us. Or when we get angry with ourselves or other people or with different situations, you know, why do we fall into anger? It's because we keep grasping at this world as a self. Myself, me, mine, myself. So if it's other people's words, you know, we say, oh, they've hurt me. But who is this me who's being hurt? Why do we grasp at those words so strongly? As we develop insight into an Ichadukha Anatta, it starts to train the mind to, to see things more correctly. It helps us to let go. Let go of all kinds of cravings and attachment. And this is why the mind experiences more peace. The peace and the clarity coming from seeing the way things are. The Buddha said like upturning um, a pot or some kind of container that was previously face down on the ground and you turn it up and you can see, see the truth of things whereas before it was covered over. Sometimes it can be as simple as that. You're simply meditating and you see your own angry thought come up in the mind maybe a memory or a thought. But at the same time you establish mindfulness and you just see, oh, this thought is just a thought. It's just a thought arising and passing away. And when mindfulness is strong, you can see this thought is not really me, mine, myself. It's just a thought. arises, passes away. It could be a thought, I like this, I don't like that. I'm happy, I'm not happy. When mindfulness arises and it breaks through delusion, that grasping at the experience, at the emotion and the feeling, and the mind can see an dukkha anatta, well, it can return to a sense of peace. If you have many moments of mindfulness, then you have many moments of peace because the mind is able to see through things. It doesn't grab on, hold on to all its suffering. You see, as you meditate, you know, when your mindfulness is strong, 
then there's this great sense of spaciousness in the mind. Whatever happens, one can allow it to arise and pass away without grasping at it. Ajahn Chah compared that state to like a chicken being in a coop or a cage. So if you've ever raised chickens and you have a cage with your chicken, as long as the chicken is in the cage, it can walk around the cage, but it doesn't get into trouble because it's got a cage protecting it. You won't go off and get lost or get attacked. Our mind is like that. When we establish good mindfulness, well, it protects the mind. It's like a chicken in a cage. It can't really go anywhere or get caught up in suffering. But when we lose our mindfulness, it's like the chicken getting out of the cage and all kinds of trouble ensues. We grasp at things as being me, mine, myself. So when your mindfulness is lost, say you have a bad experience due to your karma, somebody says something you don't like or something painful happens, you grasp at it as self, then all kinds of mental proliferation ensues. And at that time, it just seems like that's all the mind knows. So you become sad or angry or unhappy in some way. Well, the mind is grasping at some pleasure, wanting it to last forever and then gets disappointed when it changes. That's like the chicken getting out of the cage. The mindfulness is gone, so we just grasp at something, so we become that way. We become caught up in happiness or greed. We become caught up in anger, become caught up in sadness, become caught up in doubt, sleepiness, whatever there the mood that takes over the mind is because the chicken has got out of the cage and has gone off for a walk and gets into trouble. If we're not careful, maybe it'll even get caught by a fox and killed altogether. When the mind drops into a really real state of suffering and just can't get out of it because there's no mindfulness. But when mindfulness is strong, then we see everything as it is. We see body as body, feeling as feeling, mind as mind. Objects of mind as objects of mind. And we see them as not self. And that's insight meditation. Where you see things for the way they are. So we have a, a day ahead of us for practice. Uh, very nice to see so many people giving up their free time to come and practice. So for the next period we're going to have some walking meditation. Uh, and for those of you who've never done walking meditation before, it'll be just the same as sitting except in the walking posture. <laughs> in the sense that you're developing the same qualities of mindfulness, awareness, and awakening your mind to truth. Just reflecting on the true nature of your experience, this body, this mind seeing the impermanence of things as they come and go into your consciousness as you're walking. And you might continue as you walk, you can focus on the feeling of the breath if you find that helpful. Or you can focus on the feeling of your feet touching the ground. Just try to direct your attention there so that you can maintain your state of peace and concentration and calm. 
So you might find a spot where you can walk back and forth for 15 or 20 paces on the veranda or in outside anywhere in the monastery grounds. Just find a spot and for the next half an hour there'll be walking meditation. You just practice walking back and forth mindfully and try not to get distracted by what you see around you or even your own thoughts. If your own thoughts come up, just be mindful of them and then let them go. And you can recite butho as you walk also. As you walk one step put, the next step to, butho, butho, butho. So if you'd like to change posture, you can go outside, uh, do some walking, and then there'll be a bell at 10 o'clock for the next session. <laughs>